You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. everybody to another episode of the sectarian review podcast as always i am your host danny anderson i am an assistant professor of english at uh, mount aloysius college here in uh, snowy cold icy crescent pennsylvania and uh, uh welcoming or i would like to welcome excuse me today um to the show uh, Stephen waldron and ben crosby um and i'll tell you a little bit of what they do but i just want to kind of contextualize this for you if you've been listening to the show for a while um this last year i've been trying to uh include sort of voices of people who do really interesting things. So I've had some poets on here, I've had artists, and I've had um, people doing all sorts of uh, really cool creative work, playwrights and all kinds of things. And so um, today I have fellow podcasters uh, joining me today. Um, Stephen and Ben um, host a, a really cool podcast that I've just recently discovered through the magic of Twitter, I imagine, uh, called uh, Theology and Socialism. And uh, and I really have been taken by their approach to this this intersection. So I had contacted, I think it was Stephen initially, to see if they'd be interested in joining the show. And uh, they were gracious enough to do so. Um, Stephen and Ben, welcome to the show. Um, how's it going? Thanks so much. Going well. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, I've really been enjoying the show. Um, people, uh, this show is a, is a strange one. We have a strange audience of strange mixture of kind of uh, hard left politics, um, conservatives. We have pop culture. We have high culture. All all kinds of things coming together. And so I think my audience is kind of naturally interested in uh, what seems to be unusual uh, confluences in, in thought. Right on. <laughs> and so and, and uh, maybe it's because I am. And so I really appreciate what you guys do, though. Um, Stephen, do you want to tell us a little bit um, about you and uh, your background? And then I'll move over to Ben. Yeah, sure. I feel like I've had a kind of complicated life in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, some of my background that's relevant, I guess, religiously, I grew up going to a lot of Pentecostal churches and uh, pretty conservative background in a lot of ways. And uh, ended up studying biblical studies in college. Then I went to a Jesuit school to get a master's degree in theology. So had a kind of weird background there, too. And uh yeah, religiously at this point, so my family and I attend a Lutheran church, but my own views are pretty Anabaptist in most ways. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a summation there. Yeah. yeah, no, that works. And I've actually interviewed some folks from the Bruderhof uh, community as well. And, and uh, so I'm familiar with that kind of Anabaptist uh, um approach to, to theology. And, and actually my family and I went and visited a Bruderhof community here in Pennsylvania. And, um, it's sort of an intentional community, um, where they don't own private property and that kind of thing. And, uh, and it was really cool. So yeah, I, I definitely have a strong Anabaptist, um, leanings myself, even though I'm, I'm not sort of a formal member <laughs> of that community as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hear they do great things and 
yeah, I wish there were more Anabaptists around here. There's one Mennonite church in like the entire region I'm in. So I <laughs> stop by there when I can. But yeah, I'm in New England. And there aren't many Anabaptists up here. So. Yeah, in PA, we have tons of brethren churches. I mean, that's a big thing mm. uh, in our region. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I grew up Nazarene uh, and I miraculously find myself going to a Nazarene church now <laughs> against my against my will but um, it, it's just sort of how it worked out it's a long story um, I'm, I'm very happy even free will though right <laughs> yeah, that's true yes <laughs> Nazarenes might but I'm not sure I do um, but anyway so um, but uh, no no I'm very happy there actually it's just it's one of those things where the universe is poking fun at me and, and I appreciate that about it and so um, and so, so thank- you appreciate that the universe also pokes fun at me yeah yes yes it's it's <laughs> <laughs> what keeps us uh, keeps us humble, and so that's a good thing. Um, um, and I want to shoot over to Ben. Ben Crosby, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. A little bit about me. So I grew up in the Midwest. I uh, grew up Missouri Synod Lutheran. So uh, lots of lots of grace. It was, it was good. <laughs> uh, found myself in college in uh, an ELCA campus ministry, and from there sort of gradually drifted over to the Episcopal Church, which is where I find myself these days. I was a union organizer for a couple of years after college, and I'm currently a seminarian. I mean, I'm in the ordination process in the Episcopal Church. Okay. Okay, very cool. And so you guys come from fairly conventional um, Protestant traditions, right? Um, I mean, um, on one... I'm, either end of the of that Protestant tradition, maybe. But so how did each of you kind of find your way into sort of socialist political thinking? Um, the union thing that Ben just mentioned makes some sense. Ben, do you want to tackle that first and then I'll ask Stephen? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's funny. I, I have this conversation with my, my parents sometimes. They're sort of bemused by this because they, you know, they don't share my politics. And I you know, tell them half in jest, but but you know, somewhat seriously, that it's it's really their own fault for uh, for raising me to take the Bible really seriously. Um, I don't, you know, don't mean to suggest that that is the sort of only way to 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 read the Bible, right? But I think for me, you know, coming across these sort of readings about about wealth, about poverty, um, you know, about well, you know, easier easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, right? And I think those, you know, sort of really, really hit home for me. So I think, you know, I don't even know why, but I think in, uh, it must have been middle school, uh, went to my public library, checked out the Communist Manifesto, read it through, proclaimed myself a socialist thereafter, and, you know, got deeper, but I think that it's, it's more or less been true ever, ever since. Um, so, you know, I mean, I really got involved in, in socialist politics in a real way in, in undergrad, though. Um, but I think the, the roots go back pretty deep for me. You've just made a, a compelling case for banning books, I think, for some people out there. Um, um, not for me, of course, but um, but yeah. Um, no, I'm just joking. Um, all right, Ben. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Stephen. Um, tell me about your experience here and how you ended up there. Yeah, so I guess similarly, I would say reading the Bible was a big thing, and specifically reading it through the lens of a book I came across in college, which was Ron Sider's book, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And Ron Sider is very much a capitalist and not socialist at all, but uh, just the case he made about poverty and how it's a big deal from a Christian perspective got me thinking. And then uh, I mentioned I was at a Jesuit school for grad school. So I went to Marquette University, which is out in Milwaukee, which has a lot of economic issues. And it's a tough place in a lot of ways. And that was during the recession. And 
just the level of suffering and unemployment that I saw around me there was one thing that got me really thinking and uh, reading stuff like Lenin and Marx and <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, interesting. And actually my last, well, whenever this is going to drop, but uh, a recent guest of mine, um, an artist named Adam Ray Adkins, who goes by the um, moniker dirt um, son of the earth. But he, um, rec- he kind of explained his uh, kind of falling into leftist politics in through the lens of um, sort of occupy and that same kind mm-hmm. of that time period. So I, I for all the people like the, there's a recent economist um, cover about, you know, freaking out about millennials and, and socialism and all that. And, and and I think that there is definitely a historical moment that the that we can sort of trace this back to. And it seems to be that you might be part of that as well. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the more recent moment was kind of part of how Ben and I met each other is we were both involved in different chapters. They're neighboring each other of the uh, Democratic Socialists of America, which everyone talks about these days so yeah kind of had that in common along with the theology thing can i ask you guys um so i know they had a the dsa had a huge influx of membership uh in the wake of bernie sanders um is that the wave that you rode into that or had you been there before yeah that's right i mean i think for me you know once i left sort of working with the union um which i was i was working with the hotel workers union right here in in boston there were yeah, I was sort of trying to figure out what to do politically. And then, you know, I did a little work for the 2016 election, but uh, in the primary mostly, but not not too much. And then I think, you know, sort of after the election, for me, as for many people, I think there was a sense of uh, renewed commitment to, to getting back in the struggle, right? And I think the DSA seemed like an exciting vehicle to do that. Okay. And, and Stephen, you too? Yeah, yeah, around the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's been a you know uh, kind of an interesting development. I mean, and no one could have seen that coming. I think two years before it happened, right? And so it just sort of came out of nowhere, and 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 now people are still sort of reckoning with what it all means. And so, um, well, let me uh, get into the show proper here. So your show tackles kind of an inter- intersection that I think a lot of folks in conservative Christian circles think of naturally as paradoxical. This. Christian socialism, right? Can you explain, just in broad terms for now, we'll get into some more details as the show goes on, how you see socialism and religious practice, yes, even Christianity, uh, working together? Um, uh, Stephen, you want to start? Yeah, I guess a big part of it's just the person, Jesus Christ, and who he is and his identity historically as basically a peasant, more or less, a lot of scholars have said, and Obviously, his teachings have a lot to say about wealth and poverty. And you get this thing where a lot of like Christian financial gurus will be like, Jesus, talk more about money or wealth than any other topic, which apparently isn't even true. But (laughs) they'll say that then not get to like the actual things he had to say about it because they're pretty edgy and kind of make people nervous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually seen you tweet about this uh, recently that you were talking around yeah, around true. Dave Ramsey if not about <laughs> Dave Ramsey right um and and by the way <laughs> yeah there are more than him unfortunately but um by the way for the listener I mean these guys both are kind of prodigious tweeters and uh, I, I, <laughs> oh, I, I and, and really great ones you guys are both two of my favorite people on Twitter right now and so um I if you're on that 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 website uh then as people like to call it then I think that you uh you should definitely follow um Stephen and Ben um you really a lot of really great 
uh, sort of Twitter threads that um, are kind of work as kind of micro essays. And I remember this one about the the uh, the assertion that Jesus talked more about money than anything else. And even when that's true, it's often in kind of negative terms, though. They, they neglect to say. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the figure of Christ himself for you is a uh, uh, a place to kind of find a, an intersection here then. Yeah, on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, as we tried to make the case through our podcast, the Hebrew Bible also has a lot to say along very similar lines. And Jesus wasn't doing something completely new. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about your your Sunday school for uh, socialists uh, uh, or vacation Bible school, I think it was for a socialist series. And so I think that that would uh, we'll get into more of those details then. Um, Ben, what about you? How do you answer that question? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd echo everything that that Stephen just said. And I think something else that I'm sort of very interested in, right, is thinking about the way in which um, living in a capitalist society forms us ethically and sort of how that does or does not work with the, the ethical vision that we are called to inhabit as Christians, right? So I think, at least for me, you know, I'd maybe want to make an argument that, you know, when Christians want to think about you know, questions of, of politics or political economy, um, at least one of the questions that should be on the table is, you know, what is the sort of society that is going to enable us to live, you know, certainly, certainly not not perfectly. I have a pretty strong doctrine of sin, but, you know, as, as virtuously as possible, right? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, for me, socialism is is sort of one of those answers to the question. It's, it's, it's a way of ordering society that actually makes it more possible for us to follow Jesus than it does when the way that we sort of survive depends on, you know, fundamentally antagonistic social relations. Yeah, and I think that might be an opening uh, to sort of start a conversation with people who are uh, sort of maybe antagonistic or even hostile to this uh, to this approach, because even in in the wake of Trump, probably more so than before that, um, even in sort of mainstream Christian crowds like the Christ, the network of uh, relations surrounding like Christianity today, whatever if, whatever mm-hmm. whatever you consider that sphere, the sort of mainstream Christianity, there's a lot of willingness to critique capitalism, um, mm-hmm. particularly in its in its forms in its consumerist sorts of forms, and so I think. Uh, and even I've, so I've seen recently people like Rod Dreher uh, on, that, on that end of it making similar sorts of critiques and observing that there's something wrong with that system. Um, I think with those critiques in that kind of kind of middle brow Christianity uh, sort of lack, though, is a kind of systematic analysis. And it, it just becomes about there are like immoral people making decisions in capitalism. And that's what its problem is. And so I think that that is a point of common ground with sort of mainstream Christians, I think. I mean, mm, I mean that's you... interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that that makes some sense to me. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, is you're indicating the sort of spiritual critique of consumerism isn't necessarily going to make people think, oh, we should reorder our economy and, you know, the way ownership of the means of production works. So. Uh, absolutely right, and that's definitely where a, a Dreyer would come down. And, and so, um, but there is still some common ground there to maybe like start a conversation. And this is all just for me, my way of saying, you know, take a listen to these guys. And, and uh, if this sounds like 
you know, offhandedly ridiculous to you, it's probably not, right? And so, um, <laughs> and it's certainly not to me. My listeners know me well enough, I think, by this point, so I don't have to explain my position on these things. Um, so, well, before we get uh, too far into your, your show or into your ideas, I've been trying to use these kind of creator interviews to inspire other listeners out there who are interested in doing things themselves. Can you talk a little bit about the idea and the implementation and maybe the workflow of your, uh, your blogging and your podcasting? The first thing I'd say about podcasting is it's harder than I thought it would be. So (laughs) people should be very aware of that. It's pretty time consuming and I'm sure you know, right? Uh, yeah, I, when I see the, the number I'm up to, I'm astonished that I've, I've made it this far, <laughs> honestly. Um, yeah, especially since I went once a week about a year ago. It's it's uh, it's quite a, a brutal grind, but yeah, um, but keep going. <laughs> and so so what's, do you have any advice? Because you guys, what, 10 episodes in, in that n- neighborhood? Yeah, even, I think five or six at this point. Okay, yeah, yeah so you guys are, slow. you're figuring it out as you go. I mean, is there anything you wish you'd done differently at the beginning? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, one of the just particular challenges that that we've had is we were originally in the same place when we started doing this and Mm. were able to get together to record and that sort of thing. And now, you know, I'm a couple hours away. So, I mean, it works okay to do it remotely, but uh, that's that's definitely been sort of a a change to figure out. Yeah. Um, for me, the big thing was I wish I had recorded like 10 episodes that I never released and then, and then <laughs> just, uh, and then just started from a, a running start because yeah, I feel like if you go back too far in my, my back catalog, you see a lot of me figuring things out in front of people. And that I wish that wasn't so publicly available sometimes, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we've definitely, we've recorded stuff that we have not released. That's for that sure. Definitely <laughs> true. It's, and, you know, hats off to Steven. He does he does all the editing. I just have to, you know, show up and talk. Um, which well, is I'm still working on it, though. I, I got an email from a friend who was like, you blasted out my eardrums, so, you know, work on the mixing. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on just sort of the nuts and bolts, you know, we've been able to, yeah, really with sort of entirely free software and with quite affordable microphones, um, been able to to put together something that... You know, there are certainly podcasts that sound more professional out there, but I, I think we sound we sound pretty good. And it's it's you know the investment of time is real, but the investment of of money is is not actually you know as much as as you might worry that it is. You don't need the the fancy um, audio editing software that you have to pay money for, at least not right away. Yeah, Audacity is free and and works That's right. just well well yeah. enough for me. And is That's more, it. <laughs> more features than I will ever use, and so yeah. And, and my mic, I think I got this thing for fifteen bucks on Amazon, right? And so, um, and so yeah, that's a uh, uh, another another really good point. Um, and so, can we? You had an idea. So, I think a lot of people have this enthusiastic jump into sort of things like podcasting and blogging. What uh, sparked it for you? Like, what niche were you trying to fill, and like, why? What inspired you to begin your show? Well, it all started for me with a, a Twitter DM from from Steven. So the the idea oh, was really his. Yeah, it's all you. It's all you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the big thing was just there was kind of this area of discourse that I felt like we were part of on Twitter to some extent, and there seemed to be people out there as meeting in real life too, doing socialist organizing type work, who weren't necessarily. You know, there's kind of this presumption we have a whole episode about this that if you're 
politically radical and left-leaning, you're going to also be religiously, like, extremely radical and not orthodox at all, right? And partly that led to, I think, a lack of conversation about more traditional kinds of theology, like doctrine and that sort of thing, and how that relates to socialist politics. So that's kind of the space we're trying to fill. And and actually, that's a really perfect uh, segue question into my actual next question. So let me just kind of jump right into that. Um, There are a few like Christian socialist podcasts out there. um, And I feel like yours is by of the ones I've heard the most palpable for like conservative traditional Christians um, than say like the Magnificast, which, which I personally love. I love to listen to those yeah. guys, right? Yeah, um, I, I have no, this is not a critique of them. Right. But, um, but what I, there's something about your show that I think is more kind of familiar to someone coming out of a traditional church culture uh, in the way that I experienced it at least. Uh, so am I wrong in thinking this and, and, and what are your thoughts on that? No, I think, I think that's right. And I think, you know, perhaps in a, in a couple of ways, I think first of all, you know, we made a decision really early on to to make sure that we're sort of attending strongly to the the theology bit of the of the theology and socialism. That the the goal is really to dig into the Bible, to dig into to dig into these sort of questions of of doctrine and all that. That there are you know a lot of places where one can learn about you know really sort of great lefty Christian activists doing exciting work. There are a lot of places, um, you know, where you can sort of do your, your sort of socialism 101, um, you know, not from a, from a theological perspective, but that sort of seemed to be, seemed to be a thing that, that we could bring. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the other bit is, I think, I think I can speak for both of us, but certainly myself, you know, I definitely consider myself, a a fairly orthodox Christian, right? I feel uh, relatively theologically conservative by the by the standards of, of my divinity school, at least, which uh, <laughs> may be a shock to some of your listeners. I don't know, but uh, yeah, but that yeah. I mean, I think for me, the question of you know fighting for socialism and believing in the creeds um, never felt never felt as though they excluded each other, and and at least for me. You know, I find a lot of resources precisely in sort of quite traditional forms of Christian belief, practice, and devotion for for sustaining me in the the political work I do. Okay, Stephen. Yeah, similarly, I would say at one point I got into a blog exchange with someone who had written a blog post. It was kind of like disparaging the idea of orthodoxy as something socialist Christians should be. Uh, interested in upholding or anything like that so i kind of went like line by line through the creed and was just like okay here's this radical political implication here's this other one so yeah just trying to explain how that kind of orthodoxy can actually be really inspiring for left-wing politics was something that kind of drove me and yeah that's interesting because it's uh, almost an inverse of what we did before. We're trying to uh, justify this uh, political perspective for Christians, and you're almost going on the other end of that spectrum there. Uh, in that you're you're evangelizing in the other direction almost, right? No, I mean I think that's that's you know really true. I mean I think certainly for me, you know there are some of the some of the left wing spaces that I inhabit are ones that for often for for very reasonable reasons you know look with some degree of suspicion at at Christians and being able to to demystify a little who we are and and what we do 
is I think helpful. So let me ask you guys this question. Um, I have a, a little way of putting this, like what's the noun and what's the adjective in Christian socialist. Um, and so I guess what I mean by that is I don't know that I, when I hear you guys, when you hear a lot of leftists, you kind of know their, their brand of leftism that they, they sort of, you know, there's a, your trots and your Maoists and your whatever, you know what I mean? Your social, <laughs> democratic socialists and all that. And, and they're very kind of um, clear about their position in left political thought. Right. I don't really necessarily hear you stake out a, a very clear claim there, but I do hear you guys talk about your denominations. And so it seems to me the noun for you guys is Christian and the socialist is the adjective. <laughs> I, I don't know. And I don't know. I know that's not a, a perfect metaphor because those things are very hard to disentangle from one another. But uh, I'm just sort of trying to find ways for my audience to think about it. Just bear with me, if you will. <laughs> yeah. I mean, personally, I guess I wouldn't really see much division between the two in where my understanding of Christianity is at this point, where they're both pretty liberation focused, even though I'm fairly orthodox as well. So, yeah. Ben, did you want to, you probably have a slightly different perspective. Yeah, I think, I think I do have a slightly different perspective, not least because as somebody who's being formed from ministry, um, I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about what it will be like to, uh, to pastor people who are, you know, sort of deeply committed to, uh, to Christ and to being Christians, but aren't, aren't necessarily going to be socialists, right? I mean, I think, yeah, I probably do come down a little differently. I mean, I, I, I think I'd be comfortable saying that Christian's the noun, socialist is the, is the adjective in, in that particular parlance. I mean, to the sort of specific example you gave, you know, I think both of us could do the sort of where particularly within socialism we we identify ourselves and actually i think we we differ a little bit um on on that um, which is you know something we could we could talk about but yeah i mean i think for me you know especially as somebody who is being trained to to pastor all sorts of people uh, a few of whom will share my politics most of whom probably will not you know i mean do i do i think that christians should be socialists you know yes I, I i do but you know i would also sort of consider that kind of a, a prudential decision and there are certainly people of you know much stronger faith than i who who would sort of vehemently disagree with with that statement yeah so i actually i'm very sympathetic to that and i think the biggest difference between us there is just that i'm a lay person and not going to be ordained so mm. I'm sympathetic to if you're an ordained minister, like you probably shouldn't be like, oh, Christianity is this political perspective, right? That's not <laughs> yeah, a good that makes sense. way to frame it. Yeah, yep. holding up a bigger tent, uh, you know, is probably important there. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Well, okay, so we got the, our cards on the table, I guess, um, as much as we're going to show. And so uh, let's get into the show that you guys do, which is available on every podcatcher that I've been able to find, right? Um, and so <laughs> that's right. Yeah, theology and social socialism. If you just sort of do a search on whatever wherever you consume your podcast, you'll find it. Um, and at the end of the show, I'll talk a little bit about some more links. There's a, a blog that you guys that, that 
Stephen does, I think. I don't know how involved you are in that, Ben, but we'll get into sort of the... the I just tweet a lot. That's that's really what it comes down to. (laughs) Well, you're still in divinity school, so you're (laughs) you're doing other kinds of writing right now. So Um, so let's get into the the specifics of your show, though. Um, And let me just kind of begin with the beginning of your show. You kind of um, opened the series, opened with a series you call Socialist Vacation Bible School. Can you just sort of walk us through that just a bit? Yeah, Ben, do you want to take that? Sure, absolutely. So it it gets its name because uh, the first set of episodes were recorded and I think even released um, during the summer, hence hence Vacation Bible School. That was the intent anyways. That was was very much the intent, yes. And the idea was to really be sort of digging in on a set of um, Bible passages that have been important to us in in sort of articulating the relationship between our, our Christianity and our and our politics, and really sort of talk through them with I think a, a couple of audiences in mind. You know, I think one people who were just sort of interested in in thinking about this nexus that this was sort of a, a good place to start thinking. Um, you know, people who are maybe sort of in more conservative Christian communities, but don't necessarily sort of share the, the the politics of that community and are kind of thinking about how to talk about that to to the people that they're that they're in community with. Um, and then, you know, I think the the sort of flip side of things, you know, for people for whom the socialism is obvious and Christianity is less so to uh, to give them a little bit of a sense of, you know, what exactly what exactly in the Bible, you know, why exactly a socialist might might turn to the Bible. And so, you know, the idea was to keep them short, pretty snappy, and and just sort of, yeah, open up some some key texts. Yeah, they were like 30-minute um, sort of primers, right, on, on, a, on, a, on a particular key text. And that is another thing I'd meant to mention uh, earlier is in the way that your show is probably more palpable to um, conservative Christians than others is that you kind of spend quite a lot of time opening many shows with a, an extended reading of a passage, right? You sort of begin in the text and go out from the biblical text where I think a lot of people use biblical texts more kind of you know, haphazardly, maybe <laughs> maybe more uh, cynically even sometimes. And so, no, I think that uh, that that's another really great aspect of what you guys do. Um, but Stephen, I cut you off. As far as, I mean, not to get too much into the content of our Socialist Vacation Bible School episodes, but one of the big things, starting with the first episode, is this idea that there's you can read the Bible through different lenses, right? So one thing we're trying to do is show this one lens across the whole of the Protestant Bible, at least, and how sort of making choices to interpret it in certain ways leads you in one direction, and it's not necessarily the only way to interpret it, but it is a very plausible way to interpret all sorts of stuff throughout the Bible. Yeah, and can I, like, uh, one of those episodes is about Exodus, Um, and so I think that's actually a really good um, sort of test case for a lot of what you guys are saying. How is the Exodus story um, useful as a way of contextualizing not only that particular story, but the entire biblical story from beginning to end from us in this so within the socialist lens. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, one place to start is it, you know, really centers God's action in the world as as liberating action. And you do see, you know, throughout the whole Bible, especially throughout the the Hebrew Bible, you know, over and over again, 
you know, who is this God of Israel? This God is the God who, who liberated the Israelites from from bondage in Egypt um, and really sort of keying in to this sort of situation of exploitation um, that, that sort of they were in as, you know, as sort of enslaved. Um, and then, you know, the work that that God did ultimately to to liberate them and sort of seeing. Yeah. So that is a way to sort of set the stage for who our God reveals God's self to be is a God who liberates. Mm-hmm. Right. Which makes it very theological from the start. Like a lot of times people read the Bible through lenses that aren't necessarily theological, but I think like Ben was just saying, it shows who God is in a very specific way that becomes key through reading the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And let me, um, one particular thing that came out of that, that I thought was really interesting was the, uh, not only the connection to sort of liberation theology, which has strong political intersections on the left, right? So that's that's something that uh, is sort of an obvious place to go. But you also sort of interpret other events uh, in that Exodus, in the whole Exodus narrative, in ways that I think people from a more kind of conservative Christian background they don't see that element of it. And let me just kind of, I guess I'm talking around what I want to say. So let me, um, a, a personal story here. Recently in my own Sunday school at the little church I attend, um, there's we were going through some part of the Exodus story, and it was the part where the uh, the midwives were refusing to um, kill babies, right? Because um, And they came up with this kind of jokey story about, how Hebrew women are just so efficient at giving babies. <laughs> they already gave birth before we got there, right? And so, um, and so it's, uh, yeah, so I think that's one of my favorite parts of the Bible, actually, is that, that little joke that they make. Um, but then um, a lot, most of the, re- most of the attendees of the Sunday school, especially the older ones, immediately went to, this is all about abortion, right? And that's, that's the only way they could sort of um, understand that story as a metaphor for their contemporary world. And my initial thought was, this doesn't really look like abortion. This looks more like genocide, right? And so, um, mm-hmm. but th- there was some Blind, there was a blinder, there was an interpretive lens that they were bringing to uh, to the Exodus story that precluded them from seeing something more kind of like institutionally radical there. Um, and Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I have actually a pretty similar story about a different text that I was discussing in a Sunday school class once. So it's uh, where Jesus says he's going to bring freedom to the captives, right? Quoting Isaiah. And uh, I was talking in the context of the uh, slave theologies in the U.S., you know, theologies developed by slaves who used that verse, among others, to promote abolitionism, right? And one person in the class was just like, that's so weird to me. I can't fathom that it's not about spiritual captivity, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we bring a lot to biblical texts when we read them, and that's the sort of thing we bring. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you guys are bringing an, an alternative one. And I wish I had the words to say this, I mean, or maybe not just the words, but the, whatever, the uh, the nerve uh, to say this <laughs> in, in a way. I, I'm sort of not a very con- confrontational person. And mm. so, like, I have a really hard time uh, fighting, especially with older people, you know, <laughs> in, in Sunday school about their interpretation of the Bible. And, and it's probably a personal flaw of my own. But, um, but yeah, so you, it's one thing I appreciate about your show. Um, but, um, uh, Ben, what did you have to say about that um, that reading of Exodus there? Yeah, no, I mean, I basically just echo everything that that Stephen says. And it reminds me actually of a 
have a, have a funny story. Um, so I have a friend uh, who's, a, who's a union organizer in, in Boston, Jewish woman, and she is she is very fond of talking about the Exodus narrative as a story of you know work slowdowns and then strikes, right? Mm. That the uh, you know that the that the midwives are you know sort of purposefully you know sort of slowing down their work, which is again a sort of classic labor movement strategy, and you know and what the uh, and, you know, really what they're doing, you know, I mean, they're going to go leave to worship God. And that also means they're going to leave to sort of not do their work. Right. And sort of Moses as a, as a, as a union organizer, um, which is, you know, both like kind of kind of funny, I think. But also, yeah, you know, speaks to the way in which folks in different contexts and with different experiences will look at the same text and, and see vastly different possibilities in it. Yeah. And, and going back to your sort of intent with for this audience who is someone like me who has sort of like lefty you know ideas itself but i go to a, a kind of normal church a normie church mm-hmm. if, mm-hmm. If you will. Um, and so this is a good resource for me um so that the next time something like this happens it gives me kind of language to um add to at least the conversation i don't want to necessarily mm-hmm. like replace the conversation they're having about abortion in this case but Um, I really don't think that was the best way to read that moment of the text. Um, And Mm -hmm. it precluded reading it in much more convicting and um, in other ways. And so that's one thing I appreciate about your show is it is a a terrific resource for someone who's kind of in a a no man's land uh, Mm. in terms of church. Right. Um, And so, yeah, that, that was one thing. The Exodus story as a story of liberation becomes for you guys a key um, biblical text then not just another biblical story that is something you sort of apply to the bible at large then because it, it gives you this kind of liberation um, narrative to apply to other uh, other other texts throughout the the scriptures Stephen, that's right right yeah i mean in a way but also you know you see it's sort of echoed back through other stories that the same themes coming out so it's not just you know taking the exodus and reading that into everything else but it's it's coming out of other things as well, right? The same sort of liberation focused lens. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like I think there's a, a broader point that I think we actually made in that episode, if I if I recall, that I think is is maybe worth saying, right? That it's not as though we are choosing a particular lens and the option is is no lens, right? Like that the, you know, even within the Bible itself, you see sort of writers of scripture, you know, taking particular Bible passages and using them to to explain others, right? I mean, you can think about the way in which the New Testament is is very, very actively engaged in interpreting the the Hebrew Bible, that this is, you know, it's not as though it is sort of an arbitrary choice either to think about using lenses to read the Bible or nor, in my opinion at least, is it sort of an arbitrary choice to choose Exodus, right? This is something that the text itself is is pushing us to do. Yeah, um, I, I totally would agree with that. And I kind of always push back on the sort of inductive Bible study method. Yep. Um, <laughs> not because it's necessarily a bad way to read. I mean, I'm an English professor, and I'm all for close textual analysis, obviously, right? That's sort of my thing. Um, and I'm, that's the papers, the stack of papers I'm grading right now, in fact. Um, but the notion that comes with that often is that this is a 
a, a completely objective uh, way. And therefore, if you do it properly, you will come to divine truth, right? And there's some sort of like methodological uh, sanctity <laughs> to to, uh, to this. That itself is its own kind of lens, right? Um, and, and I think oh, that, yeah. that, that's one thing I try yep. to push back against. Do you want to expand and on it that? It has a history too. If you, you know, look into the history of fundamentalist Christianity, for instance, like they're very specific historical things that have happened that have led people to read the Bible through this, through supposedly objective lenses in a lot of cases that turn out not to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, what do you learn about that in divinity school there, Ben? <laughs> I'm just, I'm putting you on the spot there. That wasn't a fair question. <laughs> so. I mean, I do actually think that, the, you know, that the sort of development of scriptural hermeneutics over time is, is a really fascinating one. And I mean, in particular, uh, so I could I could prattle on and on about this, but the way in which you know you, you people talk a lot in your church history classes about the sort of fundamentalist modernist controversy, right? And the mm-hmm. sort of I mean, starts in the nineteenth century, really, you know, sort of kicks off late nineteenth, early twentieth, and and you know, sort of a point has been made to me that I sort of found very helpful, is that both sides of that particular controversy are sort of engaging in fundamentally modern modes of reading and argumentation um, that that sort of everybody is drawing on on a set of resources um, you know it doesn't mean that we consider that they're equivalent or we can't say you know one's one's sort of better than the other but that you know this uh yes that I don't know I guess this is just all to say it's interesting the uh it's 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 an interesting question and one that I think is worth especially those of us who are preaching and teaching, um, you know, interrogating the histories um, of our own methods of interpretation. And it's just amazing to me that in that crowd that wants to read the Bible sort of conservatively and they say literally, um, Mm -hmm. like what has been left out of those literal interpretations is things like the Sermon on the Mount, right? And and so Mm -hmm. um, like the the Genesis story, it's very important that we take that um, literally, right, Um, for for this this kind of Christian. And and yet somehow that literality doesn't extend to – more documentary <laughs> evidence of what <laughs> Jesus actually says, right? And so um, that's something about that supposedly objective hermeneutic that leads to this very kind of strange paradox in my mind. Steven? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of ideas about that. But I mean, one, just to start is, I think one thing a lot of people have said, whether it's like the abolitionist leader, Frederick Douglass or others, is that in a lot of ways, sometimes there are two Christianities going on, especially in the U.S. context. Yeah. and. Yeah, people approach things from completely different points of view. And, you know, one of those points of view tends to focus on Jesus as a sort of objective figure who, you know, accomplishes a work of salvation. Another point of view tends to focus on Jesus as a teacher who has things to say, right? And does things that we should imitate. And I mean, I think both Ben and I would sort of straddle that line in a lot of ways and see value in both of those kinds of perspectives. But yeah, yeah. Ben, were you going to say something? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just, uh, Stephen sort of beat me to it, but I was going to say, well, you know, it, it need not be mutually exclusive, um, even if, yeah. you know, it, it has been in, in various ways. Um, or, you know, I mean, I do think, you know, to be fair, right, the way in which sort of questions of personal morality get split off from questions of social morality is is sort of its its own thing, right? Like I know sort of plenty of, you know, more sort of politically uh, conservative Christian folks who, you know, 
sort of will absolutely, you know, apply the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount to the, you know, in the, in their sort of personal relations, you know, in the way they can, but, you know, sort of have another set of arguments or commitments about, you know, why this sort of ethic, you know, doesn't, doesn't work, um, you know, outside of the family or the the congregation or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one other like last thought on that is the one place where folks like that do like jump in with a literal, like literalist reading is the, the whole, like the love of money is the root of all evil. And they really go out of, they jump over, bend over backwards to say, it does say love of money. It's not money itself. <laughs> right. They, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's when they get their, their specificity, you know, that's right. <laughs> back on, yep. right? Um, yeah. They, they try to find a, a back door out of that conversation and that, that adjective basically, or I guess that verb in that case, um, is a, uh, is definitely a, uh, is the, is the, is the door handle for that. Um, and so another thing that you guys talked about recently or in that series, I think actually was, um, the Jubilee year. Um, and yes. that's always something that, um, is always fascinated with me. I mean, and this is something that is kind of historically bound to the ancient Hebrew people, right? Um, the, the sort of, um, um, Old Testament version, and yet it still functions as some something of a model of, of how to think about how to organize society uh, uh, along kind of socialist lines for you guys. Do you guys want to recap that a little bit? Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the big things we kept coming back to throughout that discussion was the fact that it can't be sort of literally applied like, here's the year of Jubilee and we're going to put this in action in yeah. modern society, right? As you indicated. Yeah. So that's so, a really big thing to keep in mind. And yet, like you're saying, yet yeah, does sort of show this utopian horizon of how things ideally could or should be in uh, a society that's sort of governed according to the way the God of Israel wants things to be. Ben? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, agree with all of that. Um, you know, despite what, uh, you know, uh, John Locke or a certain sort of other, you know, kind of sort of private property, social contract theorist is going to say, you know, private property is a, is a pretty late invention, right? And I think we see, you know, here as well as in much of the early church tradition, you know, a deep sense that, well, at some level there is, you know, there can never be any such thing as private property because everything is God's, right? And that sort of God has... Um, you know, elected and sort of shown us in the people of Israel and in the law uh, for the people of Israel, not, you know, something to, to sort of copy precisely, but, you know, certainly the sort of vision for what living justly together would look like. And and it turns out that what it looks like, uh, at least in the example of the Jubilee, looks a lot like a very hard, you know, limit on, on wealth accumulation and, and sort of pretty extensive um, projects of, of wealth redistribution on a very regular basis. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be set up to prevent the existence of billionaires, right? I mean, that's right. <laughs> uh, more than uh, um, almost anything else, because you sort of get in the way of generational wealth that just sort of gets people win the birth lottery, um, as they say. Right. And so, um, and that's to me, yeah, like I said, I don't know that that's a, um, it should go on like the DNC platform for 2024 or something. Right. You know, but, um, but, but I do think um, for, uh, you know, a, you know, a left minded Christian, um, even if you don't want to call yourself a socialist, if you have these sorts of um, 
leanings, uh, you know, then I think that is something that works uh, as a kind of like utopian vision, I think is what you're um, the way you put it, Stephen. And I think I like that way to put it. Um, one other thing um, is that uh, so in the recent episode, you um, Ben, I think, interviewed somebody and the name just escaped me. Uh, yeah, Hannah Bowman. Thank you. Um, about prison abolition. Um, and so this is sort of a particular kind of social justice issue uh, that comes out of uh, left leftist thought, although she does not, I remember she went out of her way to distance herself. She does not think of herself as a, a socialist. Um, and so she uh, did say she considers herself an anarchist, yes. which is yeah, that's, kind of on the left. Yeah. That's one of those, like the, in yeah. the matrix of left thought, that's one of those yeah. territorial <laughs> battles that we don't need to get into today, but, um, right. but she was on your show is the, is the yes. point. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so, um, and one of the conversations that came up, and so she's part of the prison abolition movement. And so there is a, a, a group of a th- a thinking out there and using reading the Bible very conservatively and, and somewhat, you could say literally, um, her theology leads her to believe that we should abolish prisons um, in American society and society. And so um, one side conversation that came out of that that I was kind of really fascinated with and frankly have not thought that much about, even though I know that it's a huge point of controversy on, you know, tw- Twitter, right? Uh, this is one of the, <laughs> this is like a, uh, a shibboleth on Twitter. Uh, and uh, it's the idea of substitutionary atonement, okay? Um, I just kind of want to hear you guys talk about that. I don't really have a well-formed question. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, let me say a little first that it was totally unexpected and a, you know, a surprise and a delight that, that our interview went there. That was, it was not something that I had planned when I, when I put together some questions, uh, some questions for us to, to talk through, um, you know, I think for me, have you, have you read, um, Fleming Rutledge's, the, the crucifixion? No, I have not. Well, I would personally highly, highly recommend it. It's just about the only book I can think of that was, it was, I think last year, maybe two years ago now, might've been two years ago now. So, you know, Christianity Today's book of the year, Christian Century gave it rave reviews and like America and Commonweal and the the sort of Catholic press, um, you know, loved it as, as well. And I just, you know, can't think of the last time I've seen a book get that sort of reception. And she basically makes this argument, which I think I, I essentially believe that, you know, substitutionary language is sort of vital to making sense of the of the scriptural witness around you know around what Jesus does for us and that there is sort of no way to make sense of of yeah of of that witness without some sense in which you know Christ dies for us in our place you know as we ought to have as our substitute but also suggests that this sort of can't sit alone as the sort of only way that we talk about atonement, but sort of has to has to be situated within or as part of a story of God in Jesus triumphing over, you know, the powers of evil and death that have enslaved, you know, God's God's good creation and and set us free. So it's sort of a, a substitutionary atonement within Christus Victor uh, to use those sort of terms of art to talk about atonement theology um, kind of thing that, uh, you know, I buy and I think I think makes a lot of sense to me. OK. Yeah, I, I haven't read the book myself, although I have heard it's been reviewed pretty favorably in a lot of places, like Ben said. But I mean, one area where it sounds like I might differ a little bit is that 
I think it's really important to not involve the idea that Jesus as you know the son, second person of the Trinity is being punished by the first person of the Trinity. So I would affirm that Jesus is a substitute for humanity in any number of ways through being faithful to God and righteous and such. But yeah, the idea that he's being punished by the father as opposed to punished by other human beings is something I would not say. Yeah. I mean, I think I hear that. I mean, I think you're right that a lot of sort of substitutionary atonement talk ends up there. Um, especially stuff that gets very, very penal. You know, it, it does seem to me that that sort of makes the, the error of separating the persons of the Trinity, right? That, that sort of all of the Trinity, you know, that I would want to say that sort of all of the Trinity is involved in, in the actions of any sort of member, you know, that, that we sort of conventionally ascribe to any, any member of the Trinity, that there could never be such a thing where the, sort of, the father is standing against the son, you know, in a relation of punishment, because that's just not how Trinitarian relations work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe we agree. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> this is why I love your guys' show. It's it's very kind, you know, and, and so um, no. But that that topic does it turn. Like I said, I, I said shibboleth before, but it's practically a gang sign on Twitter uh, on on left twist left Christian Twitter. Um, if someone sort of sniffs that out of someone else's theology, then <laughs> then it becomes this sort of like vitriolic rant. Uh, and so, and it is a really, and I can see why it's. Uh, the ramifications on where you fall on that question probably do cascade down and have ramifications down the, down the road there. Um, but yeah, and when that came out, but she uh, uh, uses that theology, the, the conservative form of that theology, if I took her answer correctly, yep. um, to actually justify the abolition of Chris, of prisons, right? Not Christians, <laughs> of prisons. Right. Right. Yeah, she makes an argument, which, uh, like I said, I had not thought of before and yeah so she's even more into this sort of substitutionary language than than i am probably and then sort of says yes that because all of the penalty for sin was taken on jesus on the cross that there can be no need to punish anymore basically um and so you know the only reason that anything like prison would be justifiable would be rehabilitation and our prisons don't rehabilitate successfully you know ergo we should abolish prisons. I'm, I'm simplifying it a little. Um, I, you know, encourage you if you're interested to, to give her a listen, but that's, that's sort of the logic. Yeah, it was a really great show. And, uh, and as all of your episodes have been, uh, that was a little longer than most. You guys are usually about 30 minutes long, right? And, and it's a, a nice, like, uh, intellectual way to spend a commute for me. And, uh, and I really have been enjoying it. And I'm really grateful for you guys coming on the show to talk about what you do. Um, and one thing, so let me just kind of step back and maybe be a little personal um is that i've kind of always felt uh as i have no sort of home because of this matrix that i <laughs> that i've kind of mm-hmm. uh, like navigating and you guys are the closest people that i've found that actually kind of have these kind of left pol- political leanings but still take the bible rather seriously right um as, as sort of the home base for those pol- left political leanings and um and i think a lot that's what kind of turns a lot of people off about progressive christianity um is that it can be um uh it can leave it can sort of leave behind its source material on some level right mm-hmm. and so and i've kind of on the show recently talked about how i'm not really even sure i believe in progress but i, I guess <laughs> what i mean what i mean by that in terms of christianity is i feel like um progressive christians often 
try to move. There was a point in which Christianity was unspoiled and then human beings did something screwy and we need to kind of go back to that previous point. Right. And I don't think that you can ever go back far enough to end up with an unproblematic Christianity. Okay. Mm. Um, and this is, this is sort of my, uh, what are working theory about politics. And so, um, there's this progressive drive to kind of move past any kind of fallenness within the religion itself. And I'm not sure that I believe such an activity is possible. I think that there's always going to be paradoxes and there's always going to be um, problems with the theology, no matter what time period you're looking at. Right. And so, and I think that um, that's a problem I have with um, progressive Christians who want to kind of ignore certain parts of the Bible while emphasizing other parts of the Bible, just in inverse ways that Mm. conservative Christians have done. Um, And so for me, the paradoxes within the Bible are the Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so that's um, what I see in your in your work and in your podcast are other people who take the Bible seriously and that serious wrestling, Jacob wrestling with that angel, if you will, as a metaphor, um, leads to those progressive poli- those uh, leftist politics, right? And so, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys want to talk yeah. dig, dig me out of that hole that I just dug myself <laughs> into. But. So I think, yeah, Ben probably has a from our conversations, I think a stronger view of biblical authority than I do. (laughs) But I would say one way I've heard the Bible discussed that I really agree with, there was actually a seminary professor preaching about uh, just the Bible and the nature of the Bible. And this guy was pretty conservative, like he went to Bob Jones University, Mm -hmm. for instance. But the big point he made was, if you're a Christian, you have to at least take the Bible seriously and deal with it on its own terms. And that's something I pretty strongly believe, even though I think at the end of the day, you can say, OK, I'm going to go with this text rather than this other one that seems to say something different. And in fact, we all do that. You have to at least take it seriously if you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think the language on authority that that sort of I would usually want to use um, is probably, you know, infallible with regard to salvation. That's and we can, you know, if it's helpful to tease out those distinctions, we mm. we we can. But that's that sort of comes to be where I come down. And yeah, and I think on these sort of questions of, you know, progressive Christianity, it's it's you know maybe, maybe worth my worth my saying. Uh, you know, I think for me, you know, grew up in a sort of very conservative kind of orthodox. Um, you know, sort of church, you know, moved into a more theologically liberal place um, for a a spell as an undergrad. And I think for me, you know, really sort of returned to a pretty orthodox Christianity at the same time as my involvement in this sort of left-wing politics stepped up. Because for me, you know, I just got to a point where when I was sort of deep in the work, like, I knew I wasn't going to save myself. I knew that we collectively weren't going to save ourselves by our own efforts unaided. I needed God to be more than a nice idea and the resurrection to be more than a metaphor, you know, um, to, to sort of get up every day and do the work that, that, that I was going to do. Um, and I think, yeah, for me, it, you know, I mean, most importantly, like I believe it because I think it's it's true to be clear, like not that it's just sort of a, you know, kind of psychological, you know, whatever. But I, I do think for me, it's been incredibly important as a foundation to really believe that Jesus is Lord and is coming back again in glory to do the work that I want to do in the world. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something we have in common a lot is we both have 
pretty strong beliefs in sin and like the fact that human beings aren't going to dig our way out of things and progress socially necessarily as much as we would hope. And yet, yeah, an orthodox understanding of things like the resurrection give hope that you should still do what's right and fight what's for what's right anyways, even if, you know, maybe as the slogan says, you know, communism will win, maybe it won't, right? <laughs> maybe fascism will win. And yet it's still important to be faithful because the resurrection of the dead is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I could back up, it was a perfect place to end, but I'm just not ready to let that happen. I, I apologize. <laughs> 110 episodes in, <laughs> 110 episodes in, and I'm still screwing this thing up. But, um, but, uh, if I could back up one more spot, I feel like there's a parallel movement to progressive Christianity that's sort of so-called exvangelical movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both of them kind of probably have their roots in, and this is just sort of my reading of the the situation, um, in people who are like me who grew up in mainstream Protestant traditions and see the same problems with that that I see, right? And so there's a couple mm-hmm. different um, options for your reaction. One is this sort of exvangelical movement, which I also don't, um, I can't buy into. I mean, I just can't buy into. I, I don't consider myself an evangelical. But first of all, I just have a problem naming myself after the thing I'm not, right? I just think that's uh, a strange move to make. But, um, but second of all, um, I just feel like, um, that's essentially just liberalism. <laughs> I mean, if you just if you uh, if you go down that road, I don't see how that's not just liberalism. And so, I, I, to me, it doesn't really uh, work as a uh, any kind of faith statement at all. Um, but also, I mean, I so I feel like what what is left for me without those two other paths is to exist in the uh, the conservative spaces that I've always kind of existed in, um, and just try to bring a different perspective in whatever small ways I can. Right. And I really appreciate your podcast because, uh, I think that you've given me, um, some language and some references, if not else, a reading list of, uh, <laughs> of stuff to, that will help me do that better. And so I'm hoping my listeners, um, will, will check you guys out. I really do appreciate what y'all do. So, um, any thoughts on that? I don't want to make you say anything about things that you don't want to say about, but yeah. Oh, no, thank you so much. I mean, that's really meaningful to me because, yeah, throughout most of my life, in a lot of ways, I felt like I don't really fit in many places. So, yeah, hearing that we've given you a place where you feel like you fit in in a way, not that a podcast is a place, but well, yeah, that, that's yeah. meaningful. Yeah. 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 No, really. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's uh, very, very encouraging to hear that we're not just uh, screaming into the void, as no, no, it no, were. No. And, uh... Well, I am a void, so I guess in a sense you are. But, um, but uh, <laughs> one, um, before I let you guys go, I do want you to kind of, uh, you know, sell your wares. I mean, so you have uh, um, Theology Corner is sort of a place that houses a lot of what you do. And you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, Theology Corner, it's just a website that is going to be relaunched hopefully within a couple months. And so I had blogged there in the past. I probably will again once it relaunches within a, the next couple months. So yeah, our podcast is up there and up on you know iTunes, Spotify, as you mentioned, all sorts of places where podcasts are. So. Yeah. And are you guys, did I gather you're part of some network um, the podcast is? Uh Theology Corner is kind of a that network. is a network. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it's in construction. That makes some sense. Why I couldn't quite make quite sense of it yet, but it's uh, it's on its way. I will provide okay. the link that I found um, that, that does still exist. Um, do you guys have any final words? I guess not. Um, <laughs> 
take that as a no. <laughs> this is why your show is only 30 minutes long. Is you, I know, yeah, we yeah. run out of stuff to say after one half hour. <laughs> you guys are so more, much more efficient in saying what you need to say. Um, but anyway, I, I really do appreciate what y'all do. And anybody who's uh, listening to the show, I, I wholeheartedly endorse their work. Uh, Theology and Socialism is the podcast. Uh, follow If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, um, as always, you can find the show notes. Um, anybody who's uh, out there looking for another community, by all means, like our Facebook page and and uh, and and contact the show through that. I really enjoy interacting with listeners. And uh, and if you have something that you want to uh, talk about that you're doing that's really cool, um, by all means, please contact me. And uh, you have an open invite, um, as does pretty much anybody. So, um, but for uh, Ben and uh, and Stephen, this is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Interview Podcast. I will send you out with the Blind Revelators. You'll be feeling your kingdom. Oh.